Hello. Hi. Right, there we go. Hello. Um, David Oakes here. A quick apology to start this week. Up until now, I have managed to record all of these episodes out and about in ancient woodlands, in relevant arboreal locations, or simply inside the tree in question. It makes recording these episodes just that smidgen more exciting for me. That means you may have heard wind, rain or pigeon normally accompanying these episodes. And if it weren't for my wonderful editor, Ollie, you would have heard ice cream vans and low-flying aircraft too. Thank you, Ollie. But this week, the weather has started to turn and the rain just won't stop. Thank you, Ireland. So as my microphone is a little waterphobic, I've headed inside. But that is not to say that you're not about to be precipitated upon by nature wonderment. That said, here we go. Hello, beach bums. It is David Oakes here and welcome to Three's a Crowd, Season Tree or something like that. This week, we explore the first tree of a new and mighty family. This family is called the Fagaceae, and it takes its name from this week's tree, tree number 35. Beach! The beach. Fagus sylvatica. Fagus comes from the Greek phagin, meaning to eat, and we have got the amazing nuts of all the Fagaceae to thank for that. The beech nut, the oak acorn, the sweet chestnut etc. But before I stuff my nuts in your ears, I find it fitting to firstly unfurl about fungus and its fervent fondness for the Fagaceae. So here, as usual, to prep our soil, here are the harmonious hyphae of Hardy. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. So, Christmas before last, I went for a wander around the famous and ancient pollarded beaches known as Burnham Beaches. Burnham Beaches, just outside of London, is a special area of conservation, hypnotically beautiful, alive in biodiversity, but perhaps most importantly, one of the filming locations for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Now, as well as the trees and the residual musk of Kevin Costner's mulleted masculinity, here I found firework-like displays of mushrooms and toadstools. Displays of relatively common species like artist's bracket fungus, which you can literally draw upon, and chicken of the woods that looks like the foam loft insulation used to get put in in the 80s and 90s, but also pockets of rare gems, like something I hope I identified correctly as Hydropus sabalpinus, and endangered species such as the bearded tooth fungus, which grows exclusively on the deadwood of fallen ancient individuals. In fact, the only thing more prevalent than the beech trees and their associated fungi were the photographers there to take photos of them. But, however spectacular the toadstools may be, what is happening beneath Burnham Beaches is far more incredible. So the word of the day, and I truly hope most of you already know it, but forgive me either way for the lecture if you don't, is mycorrhiza. Mycorrhiza literally means fungus root and is used to define the relationship between fungi and plants, and it is arguably the most important thing keeping our forests in harmony. The basics of a mycorrhizal relationship are that the fungal partner, via its myriad of hyphal threads, connect the tree to a further massive underground network of more and more hyphal threads, primarily for the purpose of hunting out water and a full range of different nutrients. In layman's terms, think long, thin, underground mushroom tentacles – 
Tentacles that fit around a tree's root like a well-fitted sock. Socks with many weird-shaped toes. Toes made from a super-absorbent sponge. Sponge that just loves sucking up things that plants bloody love, need and get addicted to. Just please don't use that description in front of a mycologist. Coined by the scientist Suzanne Simard, all of this has become commonly known as the Wood Wide Web. But besides providing access to water and nutrients, there is much, much more that these fungis do for plants. Some fungi help stop pathogen attacks, others help trees communicate between each other, and some, known as saprophytes, break down bulky organic materials such as dried leaves, old wood, dead badgers, and in the case of the beech trees, the tough husks of beech nuts into rich, life-supporting hummus by which I do not mean mashed chickpea dip, rather rich organic plant food that can often be full of broken down nuts and plants. So yes, I guess in some sort of way it is like hummus. It's just darker and has more earthworms in it and more decomposing mustelids, etc. But the truth is, trees can benefit from these mycorrhizal relationships to such an extent that some species offer up 50% of all the sugar that the tree creates through photosynthesis. This is a huge proportion, so it must be worth it. There is so much that we know, and so much more that we're still discovering, about mycorrhiza and its role in our woodlands, but those are the basics. There are also, seemingly, as many really good podcasts on mushrooms out there as there are kinds of fungi, and if you would like me to plug your fungus podcast here, please make checks payable to David Oaks at Quersign Limited. Thank you very much. But before our first Fagaceae, one final fungus fact. In the nutrient-poor soils of the Arctic tundra, 100% of the species there engage in these very cool, literally, symbiotic mycorrhizal associations, whereas globally, only 2% of species do. Yet here, in our cool, dark, damp climate, over a third of all our native tree species do. These 20-ish tree species, in no small part as a byproduct of their mycorrhizal partnerships, have a significant competitive advantage over those trees that do not work in partnership with a fungus. Meaning, you'll have probably often noticed these species across the British Isles without, until now, knowing exactly why they're so prevalent. But, thanks to fungi, we are a nation of birches. Oaks, willows, poplars... Alder, hazel, hornbeam, and of this week's tree, the beech. Beech! Thank you, Bella. The common beech is one of our very tallest trees, reaching as high as 50 metres. Currently, the tallest native tree in all of the UK is a beech. It stands at about 45 metres tall and can be found at the bottom of Hagwood alongside the River Derwent in Derbyshire. In lifespan, our beech fails to reach the grand old age of the oak, struggling to surpass around 300 years, although rare trees have been found to be about 500 years old. And this is primarily due to the lack of the tannic acid which is present in oak trees, or indeed the resin present in conifers, both of which help defer core rot during the tree's middle ages and help the trees live far longer. And although the tallest, our beech is more often than not relegated to what the patriarchy perceive as being second best, for the beech is known as the mother, or the queen of the woods, with the highest honour of kingship being reserved for next week's tree, the oak. But with Boudicca 
Elizabeths 1 and 2, Mary, Queen of Scots, Freddie, Brian, Roger and John, the British Isles have long been a place where queens rule supreme. Across mainland Europe, the mighty beech holds a major foothold, often being the co-dominant tree species alongside the silver fir. But here's the thing, the beech is not native to Ireland, nor is the beech native to Scotland, and in the UK and Wales, the beech is probably only truly native to the southeast of each. Pollen analysis of our isles suggests that the beech returned to Britain from Europe fairly late on in the post-glacial period, and it was not to be found north of the line between the Severn and the Wash, and even there, not much at all. Basically, it seems that our beech doesn't like to get her feet wet, and beech trees continue to be watershy today and prefer a home on the well-drained limestone uplands of southern Britain. But I can hear you all thinking, beaches are everywhere, don't go telling me that they're not native, that's just ridiculous. Well, to a greater or lesser extent, the substantial modern distribution of beech trees is artificial. They have been propagated by man, but this abundance of trees throughout our isles highlights the oh-so-many-human uses we have found for the beech tree. Its wood, for its leaves, and its nuts. So... Beech wood is seen as one of the very best firewoods. It burns slow, hot and even. The smoke of which is used to flavour hams from Westphalia, cheeses from Normandy and beers from Budweiser. Dried beech leaves, soft and fragrant as they are, traditionally provided more comfort than straw and were used as the stuffing for mattresses, with the French even calling them lits de parlement, talking beds, because of the gentle rustlings as one shifted throughout the night. Our modern age offers a wonderful echoing of this, for you can now buy pyjama de parlement, modern nightwear woven from beech wood fibres. And then there's the beech tree's nuts. Beech nuts are a wonderful source of protein. They can be used to produce cooking oil, to make nut flour for breads and pastries, and, according to Pliny, the people of the Greek island Chios survived a siege by living on a diet wholly of beech nuts produced from the trees within the walled town. And as alluded to in our introduction, all our members of the Fagaceae produce nuts, all of which are supported or protected in a cupule, albeit one that varies from species to species. The oaks have acorns in cups, the sweet chestnut is covered in a shell of spines, and the beechnut is encased in an armour-like husk. And next springtime, when you come across a member of the Fagaceae, be sure to whip out your trees-a-crowd, painted pocket magnifying glass, and take a look at the flowers of the female catkin, for there you will see four specialised leaves, or bracts, which take the form of tiny wee miniature versions of the fruit that eventually follows. In the case of the beech, you will see super cute small lime green bracts coated in scarlet fluff, all of which will eventually harden, turn brown and become the unmistakable mast that you'll see coating beech forest floors. And yes, the fruits of the Fagaceae, especially the nuts of the beech, are called mast. M-A-S-T. But I will speak further about that and indeed how mast supports my unhealthy love of piglets next week. Anyway, beech woodland is famous for being shady. In fact, traditionally, it was said that were you crass enough to swear beneath the beech, God forbid, that its canopy would rustle in protest. But if that is to be believed, the beech objects to almost everything, for the canopy of a beech tree can become so dense as to block out the light from the sun. For example, 
a young beech sapling growing faster than a decades-old oak tree could easily surpass the oak in height, only then to stretch out its upper branches and starve the older, poor oak of sun, dooming it to an early demise. A coup of the queen overtaking the king. As such, it is often only specialist, shade-tolerant plants that can survive in beech forests, one of which is our wonderful native bluebell which covers the floor of beech forests in an hypnotic annual violet carpet. The bluebell survives here by flowering and indeed pollinating in early spring, well before the beech canopy becomes impenetrable to sunbeams. Bluebells also have young shoots that can penetrate through the thick beech litter of the previous year's fallen leaves and mast husks. And bluebells also have mycorrhizal links, using their own fungal friends to assist in getting the nutrients they need. Hooray for fungi once again. But surely a tree that makes it so hard for many plant species to exist would be a bad thing. Well, not in the case of our queen. It supports a whole host of lichen, bryophytes, birds, mammals and invertebrates, and, as I hope I've suitably hit home already, fungi. And it also plays a key role in something arguably more important. I like to think of beech forests as working a bit like a field in its fallow stage. The shade that the beech tree casts with its super-dense canopy keeps moisture in the ground. Her immense root systems prevent soil erosion and the vast amount of annual mast and leaf litter adds vital hummus back to the ground. Again, not the chickpea kind. And in conjunction with its mycorrhizal partners, the beech queen provides a motherly role for the whole forest, regenerating the soil and creating an environment for the long-term health of so, so many species. Now, to end this week's episode, I want to pop across to Germany for a second. Once upon a time... There was a beech tree in Germany, one growing not too far from the town of Sondershausen. First documented in 1690, this beech tree was genetically the same as pretty much every other common beech tree, but with one exception. A gene that had been accidentally switched on meant that the skin of the leaves, which are usually transparent and reveal the green chlorophyll beneath, were actually a deep purple. You and I know these trees as copper beeches, but the Germans called them Blutbucher, blood beeches, and this particular tree was the Mutterblutbucher, the mother blood beech. This mother blood beech was to become the primogenitor of pretty much every single ornamental copper beech that you find in a garden centre today. 99% of all blood beeches descend from this one mother tree. However, that is not to say that on a rare occasion you won't find a copper beech tree growing wild that simply by chance has the same misfiring gene as the Mutterblutbucher. In fact, my grandfather, well aware of this, promised my father as a boy two and six should he ever be fortunate enough to find a copper beech sapling growing wild and to bring it back for his garden. But sadly for my father's tuck shop allowance, he never did. You may even find a beech tree that has just the one branch that suffers this mutation and offers up one solitary purple branch to the skies in an otherwise green canopy. But I digress. I mentioned the Mutterblutbucher because in perhaps the most wonderful union of botany, language and human culture, which is, if anything, what this podcast is about, in contemporary German, whilst Bucher, as you've heard, means beech, the word for book, book, simply lacks that final extra e, for both the German and indeed English word for book have the same etymological root. 
They derive from the Anglo-Saxon word "bock," which means beach. The reasoning behind this is that the bark of a beech, both whilst the tree stood and after felling, was used by early man to carve runes upon. So, without the beech, we would not have books, sort of, and that is quite some legacy. And one final bit of German that neatly bridges the gap between this week's beech and next week's oak. According to a traditional German saying, apparently during a lightning storm, one should buchen sollst du suchen. Eichen sollst du weichen. This translates as a beech you should seek, oak you should avoid. The German old wives' thinking was that as oak trees often bear the scars and burns of lightning strikes, whereas beech trees do not, one would be far better placed to shelter during a storm beneath the beech rather than the oak. But Peter von Leben, the now near legendary German forester of beech woodland and the author of the international bestseller The Hidden Life of Trees, believes this thinking is unter aller Sau. Catastrophic. Peter says, That's not a good advice. You're better off hugging the ground and getting as far away from either oak or beech. Both large trees attract lightning. And the fact that the beech tree rarely seems marked by lightning is simply a result of its smooth bark. The smoothness of beech bark allows rainwater to cascade directly down the tree, conducting the electricity safely to the ground without damaging the trunk. The oak's rough bark, however, does not. The most direct path for the lightning's charge should it strike an oak tree is the water-conducting subwood of the trunk's outer rings. As a result, the extreme heat evaporates this water that's present in the sapwood, and the trunk bursts and burns and singes. And this is why the oak often appears so scarred, why the German folk saying came about in the first place, and indeed why the Vikings believed that the oak was the sacred tree of the lightning-wielding Thor, the god of thunder. But much, 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 much more on the oak next week. But now that you know the science behind the story, if you need a German saying that more accurately describes what is best to do during a lightning storm, you would do best to heed the words of a man who is genuinely taller than both the beech and oak combined, someone who knows all too well how best to avoid the threat of heavenly fire. So I give you my good and very tall German friend, Gertz Otto. Wenn der Himmel geräuschvoll sich entlädt und dir der Sinn nach Deckung steht, vermeide alle Bäume. Such dir lieber andere Räume, bodennah und trocken. Doch pinkel dir nicht in die Socken, denn Furcht und Nässe leiten den Blitzschlag doch zu dir. Thank you, Gertz. And if you do not know what he just said, you had better start learning German and read a book or two about Booker. And that's the beach, the queen. But before you get too excited about next Tuesday's episode on the mighty Oaken King of the Forest, may I remind you that I have an extra treat for you all. This Friday, I will be dropping my interview with the man you heard earlier, one of our planet's greatest tree advocates. Tune in to Trees A Crowd on Friday to hear about the hidden life of Peter Volleben. But until then, vielen Dank für Ihre Aufmerksamkeit und auf Wiedersehen für jetzt. Bye-bye. Up here today, the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British.